Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Celeste Mergens of Days for Girls and host Michael Lerner. Celeste Mergens, welcome to the new school. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. Uh, Celeste, you're the founder of Days for Girls, uh, and I find this uh, a most extraordinary project. Um, you and I are, are sitting in the home of our uh, mutual friend, Elise Miller, uh, and Dan Newmeyer uh, up on Whidbey Island, north of Seattle. Uh, Elise uh, uh, and I have worked together for many years in many projects um, around environmental health and justice. Um, but Elise was kind enough to introduce me to you and uh, is uh, deeply enthusiastic about your work. And uh, she introduced me to your work. And I was um, just so grateful to have an uh, opportunity to have this uh, conversation with you. So tell us about Days for Girls. What is Days for Girls? Days for Girls brings equity and dignity and opportunity and perhaps an unexpected way. We help girls and women and communities have access to feminine hygiene, menstrual care, and education around women and men's health. And that adds up to a real shift in communities and women having access to ability to go to work, girls being able to go to school, and the equity in the community that everyone matters in conversation. Mm. And how do you do that? We have make access to washable feminine hygiene care. We also have women's health education that's delivered in two ways. We teach communities to be their own ambassadors of women's health. And this means that they're educated to go in their communities and teach and, and sell Days for Girls kit products. Um, and volunteers make them and distribute them through nonprofits and government groups and, and service groups and make sure they get into the hands of those that need them seeding the markets for the others. Mm. It's a unique hybrid, but one that creates more reach and importantly gives the leadership to local people who are empowered to keep going because they can make a living doing it. Mm. Give us an example of, uh, of one girl who um, you've reached this way. Oh, one of my favorite examples was a girl in Zimbabwe a very rural part of Zimbabwe. And she was uh, introduced to Days for Girls on an occasion where we had to travel a long way. We had a limited time. It took us hours to get there on very rough roads. By the time we got there, it was late in the afternoon and we only had time to train 75 girls, though we had intended to reach several hundred. In that time, when we were teaching this group of 75 girls how to make their own Days for Girls kits, which last up to five years, and how to know about their bodies and how they work, how, how babies happen, what a period really is, um, which breaks stigma, and, and to know how to take care of themselves. With that education, we really only had time to do one training, but the others were looking in the windows and around the doorways, saying, me, what about me? It's probably the most difficult part of what we do, which is why it's so important to give it to their hands. And we had to leave 
a token that we would return of the remaining fabric for the other girls and promise that they would be back. The local educators couldn't come back for four months. And when they got back, they learned that the fabric had been used and wasn't there anymore. And they said, used for what? And they explained that, that they had made Days for Girls kits out of them. Who could do that after seeing how to do it only one time while receiving health education? And they pointed to a girl who is just 12 years old. She has this, in the photo I have, she has a pink striped shirt and she's grinning ear to ear. And when they asked her, how did you do that? She responded that she of course felt so strongly about it, she did it um, and remembered what she was taught. But when they asked her further, she said, I am no longer an orphan. I am a leader of women. That is the power of what happens when you trust someone to take it to their community in the way that works for them and give them a system that helps them do that well. And that is what we focus on. And all over the world, we get to see the shift that really means for them. Mm. How many women and girls have you reached? We've reached over a million women and girls mm. and 124 nations on six continents, which mm. is astonishing only in that's how big this need is. It's that widespread even here in the United States, what does a homeless woman do? What does a girl who's in foster care may not be in the most compassionate hands? What does a girl whose family has just fallen on rough times and she doesn't have that support system, what does she do? And the answer is they go without or use something that may not work well enough to give her confidence and access to all of her days hmm. of productivity. So how do the kits actually work? What's in a kit? A Days for Girls kit... Is, could be two things. The washable pads are include a system that we call a shield that wraps around their underclothing and snaps in place to hold the absorbent liners. The liners themselves are made of flannel, cotton flannel, mm -hmm. so they're soft. They're designed in a way that they don't look like a pad, they look like a handkerchief, um, but they're, they're layered so that they can be folded and inserted into the shield and more than one use, so it adjusts her personal flow needs and, importantly, doesn't look like a pad and dries quickly and washes with very little water, both very important to women we serve all around the world. It's so innovative because we pay attention to their feedback. We've been through 28 versions of our mm. kits as we responded to what their needs were. And on January 30th of 2018, we won a patent for this innovation that was driven by their wisdom. You've gotten some extraordinary awards for this work. Tell us a little about the awards that have come to you. One of the most recent one was the ARP Purpose Prize, which was lovely to have that recognition so that more people learn about what we do. We've also run the African Seed Award, which is a UN program and we want it for gender equity and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. That's important because it gave us that inspiration and tools to keep going and build the entrepreneur portion of what we do. AARP being the American Association for Retired People yes. gave you this purpose award. And the, the video, uh, just the two-minute video of you um, uh, on that site and, and of the work, it's, it's so deeply moving. You know, you. I mean, one of the uh, we were talking just before we began, and 
I don't know. I, actually, I'll confess something. I dreamt about you last night. Isn't that interesting? I, I, and um, it was so interesting. Um, I'm trying to figure out what I can say about it. You didn't look quite the way you look, but you look. But the person I, I dreamt of a woman. Mm-hmm. Let's not say it was you, who um, had a kind of saintly luminosity and simplicity. And what I remember was that I remember a, a piece of cloth with just a few drops of menstrual blood on it. And this will say something about who I am. I'm interested in an archetypal psychology that's called Enneagram. I'm not even sure if you've heard about it, but it's anyway, I won't carry on about it, but it's a deeply interesting uh, classical archetypal psychology that I'm very interested in. And in the dream, this woman had discovered two astonishing applications of Enneagram. And one was that it could be adopted to any community of people anywhere in the world. And the other was something, um, uh, some technical aspect of Enneagram that I don't remember. And, um, but the dream was so striking that I, I absolutely remembered it clearly. And I, I pay attention to dreams. You know, I'm one of these people that pays attention to dreams. So when I looked at the AARP award note about the importance of this, and you've also been, what, uh, Woman of the Year in Washington State, is that right? Mother of the Year. Mother of the Year in Washington Mm -hmm. State. And, and, um, and, you know, up here on on Whidbey Island, you go to a farmer's market and here's this booth where people are selling blueberries to benefit, you know, (laughs) days for girls, you know? So it has enormous local grassroots appeal. All over the world, isn't that wonderful? And I mean, our friend and colleague, Elise Miller, um, who's, who's, um, let's see, taste and intuitions about projects I deeply trust. she was just so inspired, you know. And I think what is stunning to me and something you said was, this doesn't have anything to do with politics, you know. It doesn't matter whether you're progressive or conservative. I mean, obviously, people's prejudices can get in the way. But you could have conservative people who support this as much as progressive people. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there's something... You know, great ideas are often very simple, you know. Geniuses in simplicity, don't you think? Yeah, and so for you to have discovered this is just extraordinary. You want to know the truth? Yeah. I'm not really the founder. I'm the really good listener Mm -hmm. who pays attention, shows up, and keeps working. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I didn't think of this. Mm -hmm. It it was inspired. I I was dreaming. I was, here's what happened. Mm -hmm. I had been helping an orphanage in Kenya whenever I passed through every six months. Um, I was helping the Clay Foundation, a small family foundation, Mm -hmm. to implement sustainable, practical solutions for a very arid community. And in that work, 
Um, we were researching best practices and inviting them to select from them to what they wanted to implement where they were. Mm -hmm. And I would come, as I said, about every six months, and I would check in on this orphanage. I had been doing that for just almost two years, and the post-election violence happened in 2007 and 2008. When that happened, they, this orphanage went from way too crowded, 420 people, to a reported 1,400 children. This was a space that was truly not really community-friendly at the how many people were already there. So suddenly there wasn't enough of any resource. They needed everything. And so uh, they started emailing about all of their needs. Our family had done everything we could. Our friends had done everything they could. Friends were now crossing to the other side of the street, so I wouldn't ask them for help for the kids. Mm. I had no more resources to draw on. And then one night I received a call, and the call was, uh, that they were completely out of food, and they had been for two days. Hmm. The truth for me is that I am a woman who experienced poverty as a child and hunger as a child. So for me, that news sent me to my knees. Hmm. I could truly, I know what it feels physically like to go days. So I did this. <laughs> I, I pled for any idea, tell me any idea, I will do it. I have nothing left to draw on to feel this need. What do I do? I kept pleading and pondering and nothing came to me, not even a bad idea. And then I fell asleep still pleading and I woke up at 2.30 in the morning with it going through my head. Have you asked what the girls are doing for feminine hygiene? I literally gasped because it had never occurred to me to ask that question. I'd ask agricultural, solar, water, medical care, educational systems. I, I thought of so many things to inquire and to bring to them as resources and never, as a woman, ever considered to ask that question. So I ran to the computer, sat down, and emailed, not expecting an immediate answer. I got an immediate answer, and the answer was, only this, nothing, they wait in their rooms. I tried to imagine how you wait in your room when there were 50 children in a room side to side, uh, two to three on the level of the bunk and the bunks edge to edge and end to end, filled with 50 in one room, and now there were 1,400 kids. How do you possibly wait in your room? And I had to wait for the answer, and when I received it, it was, not that they used a piece of cardboard and they would sit there for days and because there were scarce resources they would have to wait to expect if someone would bring them any food or water and they had very little need for elimination and they simply waited for days and that was the first awareness i had of this issue at all hmm. so what did you do when you had that experience i started to do something about it. And my first thought was that we needed to find disposable products at a reduced price. I doubled down on my efforts and was able to raise money for food and for other things they needed. And thankfully, found a di reduced discount on pads there in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And um, I did provide 
$200 worth, which was 500 girls supplies for one month, mm-hmm. and knowing that I was going to be there in just three and a half weeks. But I also knew that if I sent money for food and, or for pads in the future and they needed food, they would use that money for food and right. that's the right decision. Right. And any of us would do that wherever we are in the world. And, and so I started working on researching what would work sustainably that they could count on month after month What I didn't anticipate, embarrassingly, is that there's no place to dispose of the disposable products that we purchase for them in the interim. So we get there and the latrines are filled with um, used pads, um, disposed, quote unquote, pads are in the lengths of a chain link fence that are adjacent to the latrines. The columns at the end of the fence were piled, um, disposed pads, and even on at the end, there was a pile on the ground, and girls would reach in, grab a pad, and I found out later, to wash and reuse the pad they found disposed on the ground. So health, stigma, and frankly, problems with making sure that the community stayed healthy, as well as the problem of being able to afford it in a way that you know she has what she needs month after month, hadn't anticipated that. Our first design, the pads were white because what I'm familiar with are white pads. So, of course, they'd be white. And we made them oval, shaped like a pad would be because it was a pad. And the problem, of course, is that none of us would hang a pad with menstrual stain on it out in our front yard to dry. And they are in a place where there's such stigma about this, where you don't even talk to your family about it. It's improving but particularly at that time in Kenya, such stigma. Um, that one time, a 16-year-old that was trained in this beautiful 16-year-old um, who is statuesque and eloquent and charming and uh, knows four languages, French, Swahili, or tribal dialect and English, came up after we taught about menstruation and said, thank you. For the last two years, I thought I had AIDS. And because of the stigma of AIDS, I told no one, unquote. Someone who can use that sentence is educated, and clearly she was so bright. But if you don't get that education, everything we associate with blood is, is injury, illness, harm, and unfortunately in lots of parts of the world, untouchable. And, And so finding a solution that could break that stigma. We needed to have something that she could hang out with shame. We knew we needed it to wash with very little water, dry quickly. We knew, how do you do all those things? And with time, we responded and continue to respond, knowing that the education has to stay with the solution itself. And it's been an incredible journey because the people we serve and people we connect with all over this world are not only beautiful, but brilliant, and it's been an honor to work with them all. Mm. You mentioned um, in the video from the AARP Prize, uh, mm-hmm. which is so beautiful, I, I commend it to people. We'll try to link to it uh, when this is up on the, on the New School website, um, that you ended up realizing that you, instead of white uh, uh, cloths, that if you had 
colorful, multicolored cloths that looked like handkerchiefs. Yes. That not only did it hide the stains, but you could hang them on a, a line without Absolutely. anybody worrying about it. And guess what it did as a side project, mm. responding in that, or side product? It also is part of breaking the stigma because now uh, one of our sayings is if this, if it makes you smile, that's the right color and pattern. Mm-hmm. So now it's something beautiful that she treasures. Mm. That's and sometimes the only thing she's ever received that was hers alone. Um, and, and it's related to menstruation, this thing she not only feared or dreaded, uh, it really is part of the shift. Hmm. So let me take a little detour here. You may have studied this. I haven't. How widespread culturally around the world is the stigma of menstruation and the isolation of women and girls? And are there cultures that don't do that? Good question. Hmm. It's incredibly widespread. I continue to be astonished at how we have feared menstruation. And again, it's changing right now in wonderful ways. I'm so thrilled to report. And let's be honest, for many of us, even here in our culture, we we would rather talk about diarrhea than menstruation, right? And, and however, in other places, it's far more severe. Um, in Guyana, South America, we were once coming to a community and they didn't even yet know why we were there, except for the man that was taking us to where we were going to end up. And there was a conversation going on when we arrived that they were discussing who had likely brought a recent banana blight, which you know is throughout the continent, not just that community. But that community was discussing how that could have happened and who made it happen. And they had decided that it was because of a certain woman who had been bathing in the river while menstruating. And so it was her fault. And what should they do about it? Mm. Um, That woman later became an ambassador of women's health. And on my desk is a small basket that she wove of straw um, that she gave as gift because that, that shame and that degradation that was coming on her head right then uh, was able to be she was able to sidestep that and even become a leader in declaring what menstruation really is. And the truth is it's, if you don't understand, it's easy to make assumptions from both sides. For instance, another community that really faces this or part of the world that faces this a lot is um, Northwestern Nepal. There they have a practice called Shwapati. And this practice is a belief that you're untouchable when you're menstruating. Now, this this isn't a little thing. It's I can tell you that when I was there, that they have this metal plate, and it's called a brass plate, but it's more like a crepe stainless plates, the ones that I saw. And they're in a shed or in an outcropping or in a cave or under the house in a small area where they sit and are on straw and, and or... Mency just goes into absorbed into the soil. So you can imagine with time, any biological matter breaking down becomes odorous. So this attracts snakes. And of course, Nepal can be very cold. And so if you Google it, you'll see that women die from snake bites and exposure and trying to warn themselves in a closed area and asphyxiating. Um, 
And in this community, they explain that when they're waiting there, their family will bring them food, and it's often dried crumbs of bread, and they will take this plate and set it down and then push it to slide it so that it will slide over to the woman, and then she pulls it to herself so that they won't accidentally touch this dish at the same time. So to me, that was so indicative of how much this stigma exists. And they stay in there 21 days if they just had a baby. It's a very cramped space, all the ones that I saw. And their baby's in there with them. And it's easy to judge that. It's easy for us to say, why wouldn't they just stop that, knowing how difficult it was, how, how great the dangers they faced were, how many prices they paid for not being able to live in their communities fully to do those activities, which are part of being their community and having opportunity, uh, attending school. Why wouldn't they just stop that? And, and as I was with them, I was able to see if you and I, just knowing you this little time, Michael, I know that I think we would share this. If we really believed something that we did that was can be painful for some, uh, was odorous and foul blood, and we were told by tradition that this would cause illness to our family, ill fortune, that our family would suffer many consequences, maybe even die if we were near them when this was happening. If that's what we were told, and we believed that, I think, I know if I can speak for myself, I would be one of the first to go to the shed if I really believed that. And I would add on to the shed, we would have game night in the shed, <laughs> but, but I would mm. if I really believed that. And they do. And, and their practice has been honoring that safety for their family and friends and loved ones. And so going into a community and shaming them, which is the traditional way to fix these kind of things, um, or making it against the law, or as now it's a, there are fines associated, even jail time for the women practicing it. But those kind of things, don't, those punitive, punitive actions don't really change things in my experience. Where the change really happens is where you invite someone to make a new consideration and you give them another way to practice their tradition and honor it in ways that will work better for their community. So we've seen this in female genital cutting or mutilation, something else that interrelates with what we do in education and conversations that come out of this gift of being able to talk together. And, and in this regard, that now you can say, what if you kept all your rich tradition and what if you use this kit and you can ritually cleanse it and she can practice this tradition, but go be in her life and, and be in her community and go to school and still honor you and the tradition. And I've been in the room when Hindi pundits, the priests, and, and when the doctors and others said, this will work. And then the women of Days for Girls Nepal went into the community and started educating in women's circles and helping them have what they need to free them. So far they've freed more than 6,000 women and girls with 20,000 being the goal by the end of next year. These kind of conversations and needs are all over the world, Malawi, um, uh, all over the world. And, and I would say the good news is it's completely doable to change that. There are so many things that are hard to change in this world, 
but this isn't one of them. Mm -hmm. This is something we can change. Mm -hmm. And that's what wakes me up at 4.30 in the morning to get started every day. Mm -hmm. you, you, um, one of the things you do is encourage communities to start making their own kits, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you, you not only distribute the kits, but you strongly encourage communities, countries. So in what countries have you found the deepest receptivity uh, that, in, that becomes self-generating? Where has the, the energy been most self-generating? Yes. Um, I say all over, that's part of the challenge, right? Mm -hmm. To make sure that the education stays in, the resources for that, and the, uh, which that curriculum has been through more than 60 iterations with experts in medical and sociology, but also importantly to us, the women and communities themselves, and also includes men in the conversation. But um, that we have currently 17 um 17 countries where that's happening on three continents. There are several hundred in the queue and about just about 70 of them active right now that are really full-fledged, making that happen in a big way. We have country centers in Uganda, Uganda Ghana, uh, Nepal, and Guatemala with other country strong representation and leadership in South Africa uh, and Swaziland and too many to number, actually. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Celeste Mergens and Michael Lerner. So menstruation is one of the things that people don't like to talk about. Another is money. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm curious. Um, I was talking to my friend and colleague, Angela O, oh, uh, who's uh, sitting here with us today about this. And Angela said to me... Uh, so she thought it was just an incredibly great idea. She said, um, I wonder how Celeste feels about government getting in involved. And I said, I don't know, we can ask her. I said, but, you know, potentially government usually screws things up when it gets involved. And um, so and I said, maybe larger foundations uh, or maybe, um, I said, I, can't, I just can't believe that there aren't some large corporations that uh, have women's products that aren't competitive. In other words, they're not making sanitary pads or something, but that wouldn't want to co-brand with something this good for women and girls. So, uh, but from what I know, your project with this reach to over a million women and girls is not a large project at this point in terms of finances, I think it's fair to say. No, it's pretty yeah. uh, shoestring compared to our yeah. reach. So, so one interesting question that comes up is, I mean, why doesn't this scale? And if it scales, what are the wise ways to scale it and what ways of scaling it would you be cautious about? So as you think about this, I mean, to me, this should scale, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's incredible that you've reached a million women and girls, but how many millions of women and girls <laughs> should be reached? And, and more than that, as you've already said, not only does it solve the issue of these 
you know, wasted, shaming, dangerous days for girls and women. But it also, um, it just has a profound effect on the psyche of being told that you're every month you should be shamed, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, you, you are potentially the carrier of a potato blight or, you know, a disease or, you know, the elders have gathered and they've decided that what's happened in the community is your fault and mm -hmm. all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so here is a way that goes right to the heart of a lot of the ways in which women are discriminated against and, and shamed. And so why doesn't it scale? And what would be the wise ways to scale it? And what would be the ways to be careful about? I love this question. Yeah. Uh, this is a question that's on my mind all the time. I can imagine. Particularly the last two years, and we actually are scaling. Yeah. Um, that's the good news. And you're absolutely right. Millions sounds like a lot, but we estimate 500 million yeah. women need this. Right. And, and, and when you're talking such a big part of the world, here's what I believe mm. um, and why we haven't scaled before now. I believe that you should have good design in both program, product, and delivery uh, before you scale. I totally or we would have gone after way more, right? I totally agree. I wanted us to get to that patent quality like this one. This right. one all over the world is working the way it needs, they need it to work. Right. And we're there now. I We also needed the enterprise program portion of what we do to be easy, to be easy for someone who's not literate in the ways we're literate um, as far as reading and who is, um, has a, comes from a different culture than we do because we know uh, language and culture affects the way we understand what's being presented to us. Um, and it also needed to be able to uh, work for them. And for me, evaluating whether it's working or not is, is important. I didn't want, we didn't want just the anecdotal uh, knowledge. We wanted to know what is working and what isn't working. So we had to reach, in my opinion, um, a point where we could evaluate in, in a little bit bigger way how, what was working. Only last year, we were able to convene uh, enterprise directors and leaders on entrepreneurs from five nations in um, East Africa. And it was so delightful to hear uh, how well it was working, the changes it makes for them. One woman in particular stood out because she said, people know me now. People care about what I have to say. And I'm able to send my kids to school and they eat every day since I've been part of this. And that was just music to my soul. And, and, but it's equally important to me to hear the one that says, I'm challenged and this is where I've been challenged and to work with them on what tool do you need so that you can succeed. Interestingly, one of the things that we've found to be a hazard for success is to have had too much support. One of the reasons an enterprise might fail is if they've been given too much, too many resources, right. and not asked to do enough themselves. Right. Honestly, that's Absolutely. one of the things. Yeah. And, but we have done that evaluation and then retooled how we express and share how to be an enterprise, here's the best practices, if you will, a franchise of sorts. And so we're in the evaluation of the evaluation now and expect to scale very, very soon. And supply chain, let me just tell you, the supply chain for this is like 3D Tetris 
on level 12. <laughs> it's, it's an immense puzzle. And, um, and so I invite anyone who wants to be part of uh, looking at it and puzzling that. I think, I think we need a lot of people to be looking at it from different viewpoints because it's time to scale. We're ready to scale. This product for me and the program for me is not about my wisdom, not about our team's ability. It's about that the time has come for this to happen in our world. Yeah. And, um, and we've worked very hard to make it relevant solutions. And I think all relevant solutions, we have menstrual cups too, because really we know only about 3% of those we serve are open to these silicone, medical grade silicone that inserts and, uh, and collects menses instead of absorbing it. So be the equivalent of a tampon only it lasts 10 years and, and doesn't have some of the health hazards of a tampon. Um, very few are open to that, but more are becoming uh, willing to try it. And so we have that solution too, but to us, it's about what works for you, um, what is accessible to you, what is readily available to you, and how can we fill that need in a way that builds market and enterprise meeting the need. Because when you do that, that becomes, if you will, the cassava truck. In other words, a market truck where no one has to tell them where to get the cassava to go sell it. They find the cassava. This is a vegetable in Africa. They find the truck so that they can get it and go sell it to their community, make a living doing it and supply food in that way. But no one has to tell them to find the cassava truck. What we've been building is a, the cassava truck of menstrual hygiene. So the people come to find us because it works that well and they will make sure the quality is there so they do last up to five years. So that's very helpful. And, and what I just heard you say is that in addition to the kits, mm -hmm. you're also working with these um, tampon-like... Um, They're called menstrual cups. Menstrual cups, mm -hmm. all right. And are those... Uh, What's the manufacturer issue with those? Are those, in other words, how do you, how are they made and how do you distribute those? Those are made from a mold. Those are available through different parts of the world. Um, currently, I think the best of them are made in the US and Germany, um, other nations as well. Um, there's some in New Zealand and all over, but uh, they are a lovely and really work well. They're made of, like I said, medical grade quality. The barriers to them other really isn't getting them to the people. And it's more that for many of them, they're just averse to using them for cultural, physical. or I get it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's more that obstacle. Mm -hmm. And we find that that changes with the education and that changes with um, time and conversations and people telling them, hey, these work. That isn't an outside person, but someone mm -hmm. they know. Are they um, something that could be made with 3D printing uh, on computers? Do you know the 3D printing of mm -hmm. all kinds of things? What a great yeah, question. Just I'd say yes. Uh -huh. I'd say yes. I haven't heard of silicone being used, but if they can use some of the other materials, I would, I would say absolutely yeah, that yeah. would be doable. Mm -hmm. And what about, I mean, I'm thinking about supply chains. Mm -hmm. um, Careful. That's a big one. <laughs> well, supply chains are a huge question. But the point is, and this is where, you know, I, I'm not necessarily a 
huge fan of what multinational corporations do in this world. But one thing multinational corporations do is that they have very elegantly worked out supply chains, right? Mm -hmm. So have you ever spent time imagining uh, whether there is a multinational corporation that would derive... I'll take an example, although they may create use tampons, but Mm -hmm. they may uh, sell tampons. But Unilever is a very interesting global corporation with some pretty deep values. I don't know if you know that, Mm -hmm. but yeah. And uh, they do do interesting things. I don't know them well, but I'm just taking them as an example. Have you ever thought about looking for one or more multinationals that would benefit broadly, the way Starbucks does with coffees sourced Mm -hmm. from different places, Mm -hmm. um, that has a global supply chain and that would benefit from co-branding with Days for Girls to really distribute everywhere that they distribute their product. Is that something you've thought yeah, about? I love that. We have, um, not specifically Unilever, so I'm taking note to yeah. contact them. Thank and I'm not that. certain I'm right about Unilever, but <laughs> yeah. I've heard that Unilever, I need to check that, but mm-hmm, I've heard mm-hmm. that uh, uh, in Latin America specifically, I have some friends who've worked with Unilever and you know, on what the, what the specific project was, was on um, uh, ecologically sound uh, practices at, for a, a global multinational. Mm-hmm. So I just took that as an example, but it could be any, yes, any yes. open-minded, forward-thinking multinational. Yeah. Here's where we're at, and I invite you to keep thinking about this right. because it's a really interesting puzzle again. There are different benefits to different models of this. Mm -hmm. One would be decentralized. Uh, This is the women locally sewing them. And trust me, Days for Girls Nepal and Days for Girls Guatemala and Days for Girls, they're meticulously made. And they're able to make them at a rate that makes them affordable for their communities. And that provides jobs locally. And, And I love the layer of that for two reasons. One... Uh, it being owned locally, like Gosu that I pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, to me it's priceless for her to say, you know, I have this role in being a leader in my community. Um, though they could be just the woman selling the product while giving education, distributing the product while giving products, while giving education, it is of me such value to have them have further jobs and have them, if you saw their faces and heard them speak of how much this means to them, imagine being a woman in Nepal and you know about these traditions of shame and isolation. You know when the earthquake happened, Mercy Corps came out with five things that were needed and one of them was washable menstrual care. And this is why, though it's against the law, it's still practiced, right? And, and so imagine you live in that community and now you have the gift of being an educator and reversing cycles of shame, but you also have a job doing that. We have had women in Zimbabwe that learned about Days for Girls, and one in particular comes to mind. She would use her money for food to go, we learned, to go get on a bus and travel to a school to go teach them about 
why their bodies are nothing to be ashamed of and how um, your amazing body also can, without periods, there be no people. And, and this is how it works. She, that meant so much to her that she would skip a meal, get on a bus, and go to do this. However, she was on um, antivirals for AIDS. And so skipping a meal means that those medications don't work as well. So she was literally risking her life to do that, not just the, a simple meal. She was risking her life. And we had to convince her, please, please don't do that. Let us know if we can help in some way. And you can't scale reaching all of them to go do it or even know when they're doing it or how when it's global. So it's really important in my heart that we make this affordable for her. These are the best of them are heroes that would do it for free, but they happen to be able to be paid to keep reaching more. And, and that is a huge value as well. However, it comes with the risk of, is their quality ideal or not? And quality determines one people's use of them, a willingness to try them, and, and also, frankly, how long they last. So holding in quality, um, if we switch to a more decent or centralized model, um, which we're also testing and have tested, um, can hold quality better. And of course, if you had a corporation do this and you did massive manufacturing somewhere, then you just plug it into a corporation and, and you go even faster. It will be interesting to see, and I suspect that this will be a hybrid solution. I'm happy to say that larger NGOs are caring about this now. We are in conversations with governments who are doing measurement with us now, who are talking about washables in a bigger way now, and, and that's an important part of our work and focus. And it is amazingly dynamic and diverse. And so far, I can't answer that one way or the other is, is definitive, and I truly do feel this will be a hybrid when it's all said and done. And I can't tell you exactly how this will shake out yet. So your further consideration is valued and appreciated. Well, I totally get uh, the value of the grassroots version that empowers people by making them. And I mean, that would obviously, and that would obviously be my favorite way that this would work. you know, and that's why I asked you the question of the dangers and opportunities of different models. Mm-hmm. So if government gets involved, will they screw it up, right? If you go with a multinational corporation that is able to flood markets with, you know, and your your goal of reaching 500 million women from 1 million, mm-hmm. uh, suddenly you have quantum opportunities to do that, but at the cost of the empowerment of the grassroots community-based model, Mm -hmm. right? I can imagine that in different countries, it will work differently. So for example, just to take China, Mm -hmm. if the Chinese got involved with this, you know, given the kind of system they have, there would probably be a fairly unique Chinese model, you know? Mm -hmm. It would probably involve government uh, you know, it would probably be a mandate. Um, they tend to be quite practical, you know, but they can move things at massive levels, you know. Um, and uh, so it would be interesting to see what it would look like in China as opposed to 
in different parts of Africa or mm. Latin America. Or, mm -hmm. so, but I, I love the way you're thinking about it, which is you're pragmatic. You just want to figure out what works. Mm. You know, as you say, it will be a hybrid model. Um, mm -hmm. Well, this is so beautiful. So what I would love to do now um, is um, you mentioned earlier that you grew up under hard circumstances. Mm -hmm. And my experience is that most people who are doing extraordinary things, the, the things that they're doing have deep roots in their lives. So I'd love to ask you to tell us um, a little bit about how and where you grew up. Let's just start with this simple question. Where were you born? Prior Oklahoma, uh, near uh, Salina was where my family hmm. uh, was, near the reservations there. Our family had been there since the Sooner times, and, uh, but I lived in many places. We moved frequently. I was born there. In and what kind of family did you grow up in? What were your parents' involvement? My uh, stepfather was who I was raised with, and my mother. And my mother's a musician, an incredibly gifted. She can play any instrument you put in front of her. Mm. Uh, she was in orchestras most of my life, and uh, today continues to play. Um, my father was stepfather was a construction worker. It's and did road work. Uh, they were a unique combination. My mother struggled very much with um, mental health issues and confidence issues. Um, for good reason, she went through horrible things worse than I have endured. Uh, so She went through horrible things what? When she was an, a child, she went through things that were more difficult than the things I endured, mm -hmm. I would say. So, so she had much to overcome. And I was the oldest, so I often did everything I could to fill in the gap and make our family work. How many other siblings did you have? There were five. Five. And uh, one was adopted. Mm. One came later from another uh, stepfather. Mm. And uh, but I was the oldest, and and to me they were as my children, even though the next one younger than me was only eighteen months younger. Mm. Uh, there was often a need for me to take care of them because my mother wasn't able hmm. some, at times. You said somewhere that you moved 32 times before you were how old? I did, 32 times before I was 13. And then you stopped counting? I did stop. Hmm. <laughs> I could probably try to piece it back together, hmm. but I just stopped. And, and my stepfather... Just really, I would say from the outside that he just believed someplace else would be better, someplace else people would appreciate him and understand his worth. And and I think in a way maybe he was seeking his own adventure and uh, he didn't abandon us till I was 12, mm. uh, which there's something to be said for that. But the result of it was that we would live in state parks or along the road or pulled over in a place that we could park in our car and until he got to another place where another opportunity could be built or friends could have us until we got a place. And, and we pretty much moved from Oklahoma to Ashland, Oregon, to San Diego, to Oklahoma, to Ashland, Oregon, but there would be other places between. So the result would be um, 
changing schools all the time, um, not having food along the way, sometimes two days where you didn't really have what you needed. And, and there would be, uh, we just didn't have a lot of things that other children would have. Mm -hmm. In fact, there were times that I went without adequate water which whoever has that in, in my age where I live. Um, but there were times that I went thirsty. And today there are great gifts that come of that. Because when I come into a community, I, I don't see uh, unsurmountable problems. I see opportunity. Mm-hmm. And when I see people that are thirsty, that are hungry, that are going without, I, I relate completely. And there's no part of me that is doing anything but celebrating what's possible and asking them, what do you want? And that comes truly in my whole being because of the gift of that. Hmm. I do have a moment I could share with you that, that brought an even greater gift of the way I do what I do. Would you like to hear that? Mm, please. So I was about five years old. Mm-hmm. If I just just judging from how tall I was in, in, in my memory, you know, of the things in relation to me, about five, I'd say. And I, we were in one of the state parks that we called home along the way. I was walking on a sidewalk, and I, I remember I was barefoot, and this sidewalk was just the right warm. And, and the sand, you know, the silica in the concrete, you know how it can sparkle? I was noticing the sparkle, and frankly, I was hungry, and I was distracting myself with a sparkle. And and then all of a sudden this collar of a, do- a white little dog and sparkly rhinestone collar came into view. And then the rhinestone leash that matched went all the way up to this woman who was holding it. And she was giving me the look, you know, the up and down look. Mm-hmm. And, and, but what I noticed about her was she had this big apple in my recollection, it was big, and half of it had been eaten. And, and she was just throwing it into the dumpster next to where we were standing. And, and I watched that apple fall into the dumpster. And I, and I was focused on if I could possibly climb up into the dumpster and get out, if I could get myself back out, if I went in to get it. Mm-hmm. I was focused on that. And then, you know, that feeling you get in the back of your neck of someone watching you. And I had that feeling. I looked over and remember, oh, yes, the woman. And, and she was just giving me that look of condescension is what it felt like. And, and, I, and she said, where are your shoes, girl? And I remember, because it was such a poignant moment, I responded, I'm toughening my feet. <laughs> and, and I didn't want to tell her that I literally was without shoes right then because I had this habit of tipping my heels to the side so that the shoes would wear out. And my mother would shave away the heels and until there was no more. And I had worn them out and we were between schools. So I would wait till we were at school again. And, and we, I, I just didn't have any, but I looked at her and it was like this mirror turned and I could suddenly see what she saw. For years, I thought of her as Cruella DeVille because, <laughs> because of the way she was looking at me and the way I felt and, and the way I saw that she saw the barefoot, the clothes that were too small, the dirt, and the dirty face, I'm sure, and the, um, that that's what she saw. And this overwhelming wave came over me, this feeling that I am not what you see. I am not this place. I'm not from here. I am not this. 
And of course, in this process, she had already started to walk away. And for years, I saw that as a painful moment and only recognized not very long ago how huge that opportunity was to be asked at five years of age or so, are you poverty? Are you the experiences, the things that happened to you, the abuse? Are you those things in these places or are you something else? And I got to answer with all of my being, I am not those things. That has been transformative for my entire path. I don't relate to the, the relative abundance I have now or the position I hold or the awards. They are not me either. I am not those places and neither is anyone else. We are so much more than any of those things. We can change things. We can have a world that has equity and we don't believe that because we're trapped in circumstance. I know that the people that I work with and get that privilege to work with are not their circumstance. They are wisdom. They have things to share with us that we don't even understand because we come from different lenses. If we can just open our minds to recognize they, that we all have something to contribute and it is in our diversity, is it is in our uniqueness that our greatness stands and it is only there that we will save ourselves on this beautiful experience and place called Earth, if we could just honor each other. So this amazing Days for Girls kit isn't just a solution for hygiene that is so greatly needed. It is also a doorway to conversations about health, about how much they matter that needs to happen all over the world. And beneath that, it's about equity. It's about that we cannot soar on this earth until we have both wings, all men and women, equity. We cannot be all we can be if 50% of us are held back from our greatness in our voice and in our reach and our communities. That's what we're really accomplishing. And that's what I rise for every day. Thank you. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Celeste Mergens and Michael Lerner. You mentioned in addition to the poverty, you mentioned abuse. What was that story? My stepfather, it's funny because if you, there's a particular picture of my siblings and I, and if you look at it, it's like that Sesame Street song, one of these things is not like the other. Um, I'm darker, I, I look different, mm-hmm. I'm, um, and, and I never noticed that. I even asked my mother once, how come I don't have freckles like my sisters? And she said, you're all freckled. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know I was not his daughter. And I think it was, I think that's why I bore the brunt of the abuse, but we were all abused. Um, we weren't safe there from, from abuse, from um, I'm a survivor of rape. Mm-hmm. I'm a survivor um, from a grandfather. I am a survivor of, um, of being kicked. I, I remember 
I would often stand in front of him hitting my sisters. One time, one of my stepfathers put one of my sister's heads through a plaster wall, not just a drywall, plaster wall, mm. and she had head trauma because of it. And, and so I would stand between them. And, and I, I remember one time my stepfather uh, kicking me because I'd fallen and, and watching that boot swing toward you. And again, um, from that, I gained the ability to, <laughs> frankly, be very zen and go to a place that is not this place. <laughs> I'm really good at that. Um, uh, but I also um, gained empathy that's been important in this walk, uh, that has been important in the conversations I have around the world, and that has made me in tune with what they're telling me. They'll sometimes say, say things in a veiled way, and because of my experience, I can then ask a follow-up question that often leads to a deeper reason for something they're experiencing or feeling. I believe that everything we go through can either lift us or destroy us. And I believe that every experience can work out for our highest good, especially if we are a person that celebrates gratitude and looks for the good in experience and looks for how we can make it transformative for our walk and others because we don't relate those experiences to our being, but rather as an experience to learn from. And, and that's certainly been true of my walk. You told us that amazing story about the woman uh, who looked at you disdainfully in the state park and, mm -hmm. and how you realized that you were not those things that she was seeing. How old were you? Do you have a memory of the, f of the first time that you began to understand that you were not those things? Was that time at five the first time or were, in other words, how far back does the resilience go? I guess that's my question. How far back does that, because here you were in real, in, in circumstances that destroy many people. You know, this, the literature on what they call ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and how if you have enough of them, you're at tremendous risk of all kinds of things in later mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. So the number of ACEs that you were dealing with, adverse childhood experiences, was tremendous, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and they damage or destroy so many people, but they didn't destroy you. So how do you understand that you weren't destroyed by this, and how far back does that resilience experience go? I can't say that I recall a moment before the one I've shared okay. with you. Yeah. I can tell you that it has been a process. Mm -hmm. There were times I, for instance, started out in electrical engineering, mm -hmm. excited to be able to support my sisters mm -hmm. when I got out, mm -hmm. uh, worked hard and carried way too many credit hours mm -hmm. and tested out of a bunch of courses before I even got, right when I got to college, um, had the ability been invited to MIT, chose a different university, Brigham Young University. I had a, I, I was there. I learned that my sisters had just been hurt and, 
And that whole experience, which was way too long a story to go into, but was incredibly painful, um, I just crashed and burned. I dropped out of college. I later got to go back and do a master's and second, audit a second master's as well. But, but I was a college dropout when all I, I really loved being a good student. It was one of my identities to be a good student. So I can, I can tell you that I, I think I had a nervous breakdown at that part of my life. It was, it was horrible. And, and I very well could have committed suicide or not survived that time frame at all. I mean, it was truly a dark time. I honestly didn't see any way forward that I could ever break free of the cycles. I had counted on education being that place, and now my sisters had been harmed and a number of other things had happened. I, so it wasn't a singular moment. I, I think I've been really fortunate, and I think I also have great faith. I, I am a woman of faith, and I, I believe that we are supported here and that, um, that we can make things work out for our good, and I, I trust that, and I, I believe myself in a God and and I am truly lean on and rely on that from a very non-judgmental place and a place that's about love and connection. And I'm so grateful that that's been very helpful. And I honestly think what I described to you earlier, that true belief that even those circumstances didn't define me, that I just had to find my way and I had to stay open to how to be of service in this world and, and what my path is and to not judge that. And, and that hasn't always been easy. There have been times where that little tape that gets developed of you're stupid, you're ugly, you're those things that have said, in my opinion, the words of abuse that I had were far more harmful than that boot kicking me. Um, it, they really and make these tapes. And I had to learn to notice the emotional feeling that that hit me, that feeling of feeling uh, down and feeling judged and feeling like I can't do this, that kind of drowning feeling, and then stop for a minute and go, wait, where did that come from? What what just happened that that feeling triggered? It wasn't here a minute ago. I had to learn to stop sooner to that shift, not wait a day and then go, why am I so upset? but try to get sooner and sooner to that shift and start noticing this person said this and that reminded me of and start right then reframing what I allowed my head to say about myself and my experience based on that old experience. And that took years. I remember being here on Whidbey Island and um, and there would be many times that would hit and and I would again plead for inspiration to know um, how how to navigate my way to be my fullest, most confident, most in this moment for my purpose self. And that's been a process. I'm happy to say that also as I've gotten older, I just see the amazing beauty of this experience in life. And it's so those echoes of the past are, are just so far in the distance and muted by all of the joy that I see even as I witness tragedy around this world. I believe in the beauty of people and this experience and what we can do together. I still believe. 
You mentioned that you're a woman of faith. Could you say more about your faith? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oh, wonderful. Mormon. Mm-hmm. And um, which is interesting because some people say, wow, you're always about women's empowerment. And that's perceived as a place where maybe women aren't seen as important. To which I respond, actually, I feel very held in that as a woman. And as a woman who studied engineering, my first jobs were roofing and construction. I um, very atypical for women, uh, women's roles that I've chosen. Um, I actually have been very held in it and find it a place that welcomes the many gifts that I have. How did you become, well, I mean, you tra- chose Brigham Young instead of MIT, uh-huh. but were you already oriented toward being Mormon when you chose uh-huh. Brigham Young? My mother found um, the faith when she was nine months, when I was nine months old. Oh, really? Uh-huh. So she was uh, a Mormon. She was at that point. um, That's when she found it. And and can I say that that was so helpful? Imagine being a child that doesn't come from a typical family that's, or I shouldn't say typical, a nurturing family, and and you don't have that support network where you are, but you're able to watch people having healthy family relationships and making that a priority, and you're able to model that having seen it. And... um, that was incredibly helpful to me as well. So when did that faith begin to be real in your own life? Really early. I would say um, eight years old. I remember uh, that I already would read scripture. I would, I, I remember that when um, I was eight, I really, really wanted to be baptized. And part of it was I had been raped at age seven, and in my heart, uh, as is true for so many people that have been raped, um, I blame myself. Mm. What was it that it was my fault? How come I, why did this person choose to do this to me? What did I, you just, it, you leave that room so often, um, people leave feeling not only dirty, ashamed, and wounded, genuinely wounded inside and out, but importantly, blaming themselves. That's my, almost everyone I've ever spoken with, they had that shared experience, shares that. And that's certainly true of those I serve with around the world. And it, it to me, one of the things I wanted was, though it's not true that a child would need that, or nor that it was my fault, I really wanted the opportunity to wash that away. That that was something I craved. And, and that... What's been lovely about the opportunity to talk with survivors in other parts of the world where where you don't you're not just personally ashamed, but you are ashamed. In fact, in places if you've been raped, you're considered no longer worthy of a proper marriage, you're um, in some places honor killed, you're and and it's not the shame isn't brought upon you, but upon uh, and only on you, not the person who perpetrated it in a school in Uganda. Um, we had a girl who was the head girl, so one of their brightest. This girl was uh, just so dynamic about sharing with her community. She was the one that would teach the girls coming up about what a period is and keep that education in for her school. She, she was uh, found in a room with a teacher, not doing anything. They weren't touching. They weren't 
There was nothing happening except for she was in a room alone with a man that was a primary school teacher, and she wasn't betrothed to him. So she was put in jail for one year for the crime of being in that room alone, and which ended her school career, and nothing happened to that man. So imagine what happens to those who have been attacked and how they have to keep it secret and, and, and the many layers of consequence they have. And it is such an amazing gift to me to have been able to be in communities where I could share with them after we talk about here's your body and here's how babies happen and you have an amazing muscle called a uterus and it's the size of your fist and you go through this wonderful conversation and then to share about self-defense. That's part of our program. You can imagine how much that matters to me. And that too isn't just about kick this, hit this, but rather you are strong. Where are you strong? An attacker has weak places. Where are they weak? And you bring this together because you have the right to say no. And there are places all over this world that don't have any idea that they have the right to say no. And that opens also, just like the kit opens up a conversation, this opens up a conversation to be able to say, is rape sex or is it violence? And this is sometimes a difficult question for them to answer. And there have been a few occasions where I've been able to share that I was raped at age seven and how I left feeling it was my fault and how was it my fault? And some places it takes a while before they shake their head no, and then another and another no. And I'm able to say then why is it anyone's fault? Should we, could we instead invite our community to rally around those who are attacked in this way and maybe hold those responsible who were the attackers? What would it look like if you did that instead? And that those kind of powerful questions are pebbles that give ripples, whereas command to say you will stand up against it isn't. And that opportunity is brought to me in a, in a very special, connected way because I survived. And we invite others all over the world. I get to invite others. Survive. Use your strength. Your voice matters. Hmm. I want to come back to this experience with the uh, Church of the Latter-day Saints and reading scripture at uh, eight because you'd been raped at seven and, and wanted to be baptized. Were you able to be baptized? I was. At eight? Uh-huh. And what was the experience of baptism like? It was, for me, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. I, I had the gift of um, my father, my stepfather wouldn't come and participate, so someone else had to do it. But, um, mm-hmm. but we, I had the gift of of knowing that I wasn't, that I have in my belief, other parents that are of spiritual nature that I could rely on, that I could talk to, that I could have my um, legacy from, um, that I could, uh, that there is so much more that I'm capable of and that we all have spiritual gifts as well as physical gifts. And, And all of that is part of that inner strength of knowing I'm not on my own. I'm not on my own on this journey, and it makes me actually pretty fearless um, to, you know, to my husband's great dismay. <laughs> what is your husband involved with? 
Oh, he's amazing. Uh, Don is my best friend. We've been married for 36 years. Um, we are, he is actually a COO with the Clay family. He helps coordinate many things about their corporations and, and assists the president of the company. An amazing is he part family. of your church as well? He is. No. He is. And do you have children? We do. We have six children. Mm. And mm. they're all incredibly capable, lovely uh, contributors to society. And mm. you don't talk about how great it is. Frequently, we don't talk about how great it is to have adult children who you talk with about issues and and dive in together. But they're all incredible supporters of this. How old are your children? My oldest is coming up on... Well, he is 37. Can you believe it? I can't believe that. And Or, excuse me, 35. We've been married, so it's one year. He's nine months younger than our marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's 35. And our youngest is actually 24. Mm-hmm. So let me just confess for myself. I am a believer that there's... And it's not something I can prove in any way. But I am a believer that... Um, there's one great truth and many paths to that truth. And, and that there is, um, as in one of the traditions, it says, you know, we all take different paths up the mountain, but at the top of the mountain, we look at the same, you know, firmament or stars or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I am a great respecter of all religious, spiritual, philosophical, agnostic, atheistic traditions that enable people to be kind and as wise as they can be and live lives of service of some kind. So that's my informal theology. But within that, I'm fascinated by all the religious and spiritual traditions. And I'm quite deeply fascinated by uh, the Church of the Latter-day Saints for a number of reasons, one of which is that I believe, based on long study with my colleague Elise Miller of the Environment and Human Health, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that we are living in the world today in a situation where it's not just climate change. Mm-hmm. It's climate change, toxic chemicals, habitat destruction, invasive species, huge inequities, Mm -hmm. overreach of corporate power in many ways, failing governments, um, you know, uh, technology out of control, so on and so forth. You can make a list of 15 or 20 different stressors Mm -hmm. and that there is a quite high probability that these stressors interacting are going to either just cause a series of deeper and deeper shocks or as we see in many parts of the world, actual cultural or civilizational collapse. Mm -hmm. That it's not as if this is a future issue. There are many countries that have already collapsed. Mm -hmm. And who knows whether that may not spread to include the United States and other advanced cultures. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Celeste Mergens and Michael Lerner. Ted Koppel, the journalist, wrote an extraordinary book about the fact that the Russians uh, and others have um, mined our electrical grid and could take it out at any time that they wanted. 
And if that happened, what would happen to the United States, you know? And so one of the things he did in this extraordinary book was he looked around for who was prepared. And he discovered that the Church of Latter-day Saints was actually by far the best prepared of any religious, spiritual, organizational group in the United States. So he went to talk to the leaders of uh, the church and learn not only about, you know, the thing that we all carry as a kind of a stereotype that Mormons have three months, six months supply of food, but that they have a whole infrastructure, an amazing infrastructure of taking care of people. And not only that, but when Katrina hit in the South and the Red Cross was actually running around with empty trucks, just looking as if trying to look as if they were doing something because they didn't have it. Some, that the, the Mormons were out with real help for people because they were prepared. And um, so, and now as I've researched it further, it turns out that the head of the American Red Cross has said that the Mormons should be an example of emergency preparedness for the whole country. And the Mormons have given the Red Cross a million dollars, you know, to begin to build this bridge so that the Mormons no longer look like these freaky outcasts who are hoarding food, but actually are the best prepared of any Americans. And because of my belief that these shocks may get worse and worse, Uh, and it's not just my belief. I hang out with a whole bunch of scientists and environmentalists and other people around the world who are taking this very seriously. I believe likewise. You believe likewise. I do. So for me, uh, when I look at the uh, LDS community, I may not always agree with their politics. I may not always agree with a hundred other things, but so what? The fact remains that for you, in the face of what you were living with, mm-hmm. and for millions of other people around the world, LDS is one of the fastest growing religions in the world, including in Africa. Right. So here is this faith that not only sustains people in the face of hardship, but also actually prepares people to be self-reliant and create reliant self-reliant community. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a very beautiful thing. So I just wanted to, so I, I've laid out my imaginal image. Tell me how yours coincides or doesn't with oh, that. No, that's very true. I, our family, just to say, has not enough for us, but enough times for. And the reason is, if something happened, I wouldn't be able to eat while my neighbors couldn't. Right. Right, so we have at least four times what we need. So that For anyone long? that showed up, well, you, you don't laugh. Two years. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, but um, there and seeds that are able to germinate, germinate that are that are heritage seeds, not seeds that become sterile, that are sterile, mm-hmm. that are vacuum packed. And but it's it's not a, it's about an attitude of recognizing that we can be self-reliant, but we're not alone. No, absolutely. That, that we're all connected. So community and family doesn't mean just me. It doesn't mean just my faith. It doesn't mean, it means anybody who's near me. If I was at Katrina 
And because of, you know, the we're taught to, we don't have paid clergy. You you get called and you get to hold a position mm-hmm. for a little mm-hmm. while and then switch position. Some of them are really uncomfortable to do. You, you've never conducted music before and now you're doing that and you're in front of people and um, it gets to stretch you. And, and those are great gifts. But the other thing is that you get the chance. If, if I was at Katrina, I've often thought, I sincerely would make lists and say, who here is an artist? Who here is a musician? Who here is in medical care before anybody got there? And make those lists and write down and, and make um, shifts for entertainment, for refuse goes over here. Um, to self-organize um, and make sure that we became community, taking care of each other and not waiting for someone else. And and that is a gift of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You're, you, it's from the time you're little that you you can take action, and these are the ways you can be a leader. And and community isn't just you and just your family. It's it's everyone in your greater circles and that circle gets bigger and bigger until it's all of us and it's not about one religion and in fact days for girls is non-religious non-political non-divisive anything that divides us um is not we aren't and sometimes people fear does that mean days for girls is about you have to be a mormon or and, and not at all in fact I don't often mention my faith at all because I'm protecting the Switzerland that no, we are. No, I got are. that. I got because that. all over the world, um, girls of all different faiths or no faith at all, or if we became singular and we represent this nation or this religion or this belief or this um, divisive thing, then then girls in Yemen and Pakistan and other places would yes, have Yes, you access. have to leave it completely separate. But yeah. that said... Have some of your uh, colleagues in the church become interested in this? Oh, very much. Is it a significant? It, there growth? are a lot. There are a lot, but there are also a lot of Methodists, and of a lot course. of Catholics, of and a lot of people of no faith at all. And mm-hmm. um, that's one of the things. I and yes, there are a lot. In fact, um, uh, about four or five years ago. There were 800 volunteers in all of Utah, and today there's 30,000. Isn't that um, amazing? Right. It's it's, and that's one of the beauties. Of Thirty thousand volunteers for Days for Girls. Yes, in and, Utah. Yes, and we have probably a count of sixty thousand all over the world, right? But it's just people told people, and these are people that want to help and, and want to. So is it spreading in the Mormon communities in Africa as well? It is. It's all over the world, and and other communities like right. Said, no, I understand but, that, yeah. but the point yeah. is that. It really your, is. Your faith community is one of the conduits mm-hmm. through it which is. this is um, has It spread. is, yeah. as well as uh, many other faith right. communities and non-faith communities. Right. Organization Rotary is a big right. one as well. So is it fair to say that in many ways it was your faith that saved you? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. See, here's the thing that I really struggle with in the progressive community. Mm-hmm which is that many people in the progressive community do not understand people of faith. Mm-hmm. You know? I'd say absolutely yeah. that's true. And so for me, that is honestly a weakness of the progressive community because it cuts people off from this age-old human experience that not for everybody, mm-hmm. but for many people... 
a deep connection with the divine within ourselves is the deepest source of resilience and strength. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm, I'm saddened by it, to be honest. I, I just think that so many progressives think that, okay, perhaps you can be a Buddhist because Buddhists don't have to believe in a god, right? Mm-hmm. You know? But when it comes to being a person of faith, um, and I would include Buddhists in that myself, but, if, mm-hmm. but if it, when it comes to having a deep experience of the living God in your life, within yourself, in relationship to others, that so many progressives look down on that. And to me, I just am so saddened by that lack of openness Mm -hmm. to the wide range of ways that people find the deepest source of resilience. I mean, it doesn't have to be religious or spiritual. It can be philosophical. It can be just personal. It can be just family. But to close yourself off to something that in your case saved your life, Mm -hmm. right? And that in the cases of millions of people around the world do that, and to look down on that, somehow I'm just so saddened mm-hmm. that, that progressives aren't more open to the experience of faith. Yeah. Well, and that we divide ourselves in that way. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like you have to be pres- uh, conservative or progressive. Right. Or the one that blows my mind the most is that you have a conservative can't be environmental. And I always want to say... Right. Which conservative isn't going to drink water right, there, exactly. right? I, I don't understand these divisions we right. make. And and I also love the one, I'm very scientific, very yeah, pragmatic, yeah, yeah. very, I love that, right? And I, mm-hmm. and I love to learn and, um, and have been thankfully gifted with a mind that can absorb a lot mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, I also am troubled or puzzled by that some people feel like... Um, faith and things we can't see couldn't be true because scientifically you can't see them. And and when they're describing the very evidence, like that a, an embryo of a whale, of a chicken, mm-hmm. and a human, how it's so different, same, so much the same at one point, yeah. and then it triggers, there's a trigger they know that happens, and it's in the DNA sequence during, during the dark segments, the 80% of the DNA they can't see because it's dark segments, um, and that's proof that there is no God because they're the same, and then something shifts that they can't see, so that's proof. And I look at them and go, that's proof that we have a lot to learn, and that's proof that there's a lot we don't understand. And to mm-hmm. me, I, I know that, there, that we are connected. I know that when one of us makes a shift to a higher ability to be love and, and be part of God, then, then what that does is lift all of us, regardless of what we believe. Just in, in your way, that'd be just to more light, to mm-hmm. more. Um, when we do that, we lift us all because we are connected, mm-hmm. whether we like to think so or not. Mm-hmm. And when we do something that harms one of us, it it harms all of us. Mm-hmm. And 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 so, to me, listening to that kind of thing, I go, wow! I just there's so much we don't see. When you're explaining that to me, you're explaining to me that. It, it, there's a miracle that happens there, and it's amazing and how much the patterns relate and that we don't know. That's what you're telling me. And, and I want to know why 
We can't believe mm. that, that we are spiritually connected. Mm. Why we can't be part of an orchestra that has some divine um, pattern to it. Uh, why it has to be one or the other. And, and why it would hurt anyone to believe in a conductor that could be about love and our highest ability. Why, why, why we have to do that? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, it's funny. William James, the great psychologist, once said that if there is free will, his first choice would be to believe in free will. You know, mm -hmm. And um, I what I would say is it all depends on what we define as the divine or the mystery. And we can hold that in a purely secular, purely scientific, religious, spiritual, philosophical way. It really doesn't matter to me. Mm -hmm. And to me, the question is always, what is the fruit that you see in, a, in an individual life? You know, mm -hmm. in, ev in every one of those approaches, there will be people who hold it as a, quote, belief, who are cruel and unkind and selfish. And there will be people who are saintly. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. different ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's, you know, by their fruit shall you know them, you know, that yes. you will know people by their ability to be kind, to be of service. It doesn't really matter which path they take. So to me, coming back to Days for Girls, which you are the founder of and which is spreading around the world, it's reached over a million women and girls, uh, you have 499 million to go, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're trying to figure out how to get there. Yeah. And uh, you don't think there's going to be a single model, but it will be hybrid, different in different places. But it's spreading. And you're really at the place where you're asking the questions. And I deeply love the fact, because this is how we do things at Commonweal. You know, everything I've started at Commonweal over the last 42 years I've started from nothing, you know? And we start, my way of doing it is to start in a way that nobody can stop me, which means not requiring money at the beginning. Just mm -hmm. start. Mm -hmm. And then let it show you what it wants to be. And make the mistakes while you're small. Mm -hmm. And learn and learn and learn until you reach a point which you've now reached, where after how many iterations? 28. 28 iterations. Now you have a patented version of it and all this, you know, complexity of different approaches. Mm -hmm. So now you're asking, how does it really scale, right? Mm -hmm. And the beauty of it, as you say, is that you are a woman of faith. It saved your life. But Days for Girls is a Switzerland. It's, it's immune to all different reasons why people would do this. Absolutely. And people can do it from any possible perspective, mm -hmm. you know. So I just love the work. So how can we who are drawn to Days for Girls, how can we help and support you? What, as people listen to this and they want to know how they can participate, how they can help, uh, what would you have us do? There's so many ways. Um, of course, there's the traditional answers that you can um, follow us in social media. You can donate. You can also, in Days for Girls, volunteer with a local chapter. What's the website? It's daysforgirls.org. And it really is, you're giving them back days of their is life. Is the four of four numer? F-O-R. 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 Daysforgirls.org. 
Org, O-R-G, O-R-G. and it will get you, even the numeral four will get you there either. And also you're on Facebook and social media. We are. So you can volunteer with a local chapter. You, you can. can contribute. What and else can you, you do? you can also be part of the brain trust. So there's ways to go uh, to train to be an educator with Days for Girls and to go and be a mentor. Mm-hmm. There are ways, um, it requires education and mm-hmm. training, but there's also, you can be part of the advisory councils. Um, you can be, um, if you're someone that has a specialty in supply chain, a specialty in um, some of these um, social venture scale models, um, we are quite sophisticated in our knowledge about these, but we don't necessarily want to do them I, we want to do them in the best way that works for them. So we're trying several models and testing them. And um, But we need, really need all of us uh, to get there with $499 million to go. Mm-hmm. We're not the only ones answering this call. There are other orgs answering it as well. And for us, that works. Um, it's about reaching them in quality ways. We just know that our program has been conscious about what the solution is and how suitable it is. Mm-hmm. And... And we want to share that with others. So there's ways to, um, if you know of someone who works in some of the communities that might need this, you can ask. And you can connect to our website and, and connect them to us. And they can either train to be an enterprise or just order days for mm-hmm. those kits, either locally or through our distribution channels. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many, many ways to get involved. There are many ways to volunteers that could include sewing. And importantly, many don't include that at all. It'd be helping with uh, social media. If you know a thought leader or a celebrity that might help to be a voice with us, or you know someone that's just an innovative thinker that might be want to be on the Days for Girls Think Tank team. All, there are many, many ways to help. Mm-hmm. Celeste Mergens, founder of Days for Girls. Um, I am honored and grateful to have had this conversation with you. It's been a delight. So good to be with you. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Celeste Mergens and Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.